Uh, We'll be looking at Titus chapter 3, verses 1 to 3 this evening. Um, I trust a very relevant passage for us, a passage that um, is very fitting for these times in which we live, and one that I hope we will give um, attention and give heed to. So we're looking at Titus chapter 3, and I'll read verses 1 to 7. This is God's holy word. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly, Through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's holy word. Always thankful for the many people we have who are behind the scenes. Uh, working on the soundboard, greeting, and uh, we've got a great team here at First, um, or not First, we're meeting at First, but uh, a Grace Fellowship and just, yeah, so thankful for um, everyone that helps to make these services happen. So. How are we doing? Wonderful, we're in Titus 3, 1 to 3. We're talking tonight about Christian civics. I don't know how many of you studied civics in, say, high school or elementary school, uh, but the study of civics is really just the study of the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. And according to the national standards for civics and government, uh, there are three components to a good civic education. The first is civic knowledge, which is just our basic understanding of how Um, our systems and government works. Secondly, there are civic skills, which is the understanding of how do we actually participate in the sort of structures of society appropriately. But thirdly, and I think most interestingly for our passage tonight, uh, there is what are called civic dispositions. And this is what the standards write about civic dispositions, that they refer to the traits of private and public character essential to the maintenance and improvement of constitutional democracy. The importance of civic dispositions can scarcely be overemphasized. The traits of public and private character that undergird democracy are, in the long run, probably of more consequence than the knowledge or skills a citizen may command. They're hearkening on the importance of these traits of public and private character. But before there was the national standards for civics, God in his word has given his people instructions on how to conduct themselves in civic life. What we might call the practice of Christian 
civics. The word of God is concerned with how we conduct ourselves in society at large. And as we've looked in Titus chapter 2 at very specific instructions to particular demographic groups, older men and women, younger men and women, slaves and free, we now come Um, after he's elucidated the gospel basis for such behavior and commanded Titus to speak these things with authority, we come to a further set of commands applicable to all, commands related to Christian conduct in the public sphere. And the thought is that just as we discussed how we can adorn the gospel by living godly lives that witness for Christ in our private lives, so we can in our public interactions. That is to say, there is a distinctly Christian way to live as a God-honoring citizen. And so we're looking at Christian civics tonight. And I think this is especially relevant in a time we live of deep polarization, deep distrust, deep disagreement. It's more important than ever for us to learn how to conduct ourselves as Christians and to behave in the public sphere as God would have us. You see, because we can't let our culture dictate the norms and standards of behavior. We must look to the word of God to learn this distinctive Christian civic engagement. And so we're going to look at Christian civics tonight under the headings of distinctively Christian civic actions, distinctively Christian approaches, and distinctively Christian attitudes. That's what we're looking at tonight. So let's start off, look at verse 1 there um, as we see the action of Christian civics. Paul says to Titus, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. So he starts off saying, hey, Titus, remind the church of this. Uh, That means it's probably something Paul taught before. And he says, remind them because if they're anything like us, we know we're so prone to forget. We're so prone to forget. We need to be reminded again and again of the duties God calls us to. And he says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. And in case they're wondering what this submission means, he explains in the next line, to be obedient and to be ready for every good work. So we can look at Christian civic action under these two headings, obedient submission and good works. Obedient submission and good works. So first, obedient submission, he says is due to rulers and authorities. Now we might ask, okay, what are, what's he referring to by rulers and authorities? At times, these terms are used actually of spiritual rulers and authorities. But we see here, it's referring to natural rulers by the fact that we're called to be obedient to them. And these two terms, when they're used together, are used particularly by Christ to refer to the rulers and authorities of the Gentiles. That's the context. Uh, the governing authorities in the area. And the call is to submit and obey to them. And we understand that throughout Scripture, God's people are called to submit in various relationships that God has designed to be part of the framework of his creation. We understand that relationships of authority and submission are actually part of God's good design, whether that's the submission of children to parents, employers to employees, church members to church leaders, or, as in this case, citizens to government. These are part of God's good ordained creational structures that help govern and maintain a peaceful society. And so it's fitting then, as Paul more famously says in Romans 13:1, to let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted 
by God. These authorities are, um, um, we ought to submit to them because they are ordained of God. And now I think quickly our minds go to the question of, well, if I'm called to submit to these authorities, what's sort of the limits of this submission? Does this know no bounds? And we would say, of course not. The limits of submission in every sphere of life, whether in the home or in the state, are the limits of obedience to God's word. We can never go against the... No one has the right to command anyone to do anything that is clearly contrary to the word of God. If, and in that case, we must say along with Peter and John in Acts 5.29 that we must obey God rather than men when there's a call to clearly violate the word of God. But as I reflect on at least my life, I don't feel like I've seen this really come across that many times. And as I reflect, it seems to me that most often we struggle and refuse to submit to the rules and regulations of our civil authorities, not because they clearly violate God's commands, but simply because they seem to us unfair, unreasonable, or unnecessary. And I thought commentating on this passage, Pastor uh, Kent Hughes had some helpful points to say. He's a pastor, or was a pastor, out of Wheaton, Illinois. He said this, An anti-authority mindset pervades our culture and, in fact, the church. There's a temptation to think that because the authorities are not reasonable, our obligation to submit to them is annulled. Many seem to think that they have a responsibility to submit to authority only as long as they agree with it, or as long as it is fair in their eyes, or as long as it does not require too much inconvenience. And he concludes this way, if the people of the church will not honor authority, the word of God will have no credibility for those outside the church. I think our Kent Hughes understands that there is a necessary connection between our God-commanded submission and our public witness. There is a close connection between how we conduct ourselves in the view of society and what that reflects about the God we serve and the standards to which we adhere. And you know, we do naturally think then, well, uh, that's all well and good if the authorities are good and godly, but what about when they're ungodly? What about when they are not really doing what's in the best interest of society or they're perhaps overreaching, overextending their power? What then? Well, if anyone had the right to think this way, it would have been these Cretan believers. The people of Crete had been hostily overtaken by the Roman Empire and brought under that iron fist And even though Rome did allow a level of freedom for the people they ruled, they were still a strong um, nation that quenched any and all rebellion. But to further exacerbate this, the Jewish people, of which there was many on Crete, were actually known as some of the most rebellious and insubordinate people um, in that period, and actually for many centuries. The reason being, and it makes sense for us to think this way, is they understood that God had promised them a land, promised them self-rule, and so they knew, hey, we have God on our side. Of course we should try to cast off this yoke of Rome. Of course we should rebel against the government because God wants us to be in charge. We're God's people. We should be ruling, not Rome. 
And so this situation was fraught with difficulty. And it's interesting, we actually have writings from a writer at this time. His name was Polybius, and he said this, that of Crete, at this time, it was impossible to find personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust than in Crete. There wasn't personal conduct more treacherous or public policy more unjust. But yet, Paul writes to this people, even though Rome is ruling you with an iron fist, you need to submit to and obey these rulers and authorities. And if they were called to that, how much more are we? And the hard truth for us is that uh, it's easy to submit when it's convenient. But the the submissiveness of our hearts is most truly tested when we're called to things that we don't want. Right? Parents, you know this with your children. Uh, If they're upstairs playing and you say, call them down for ice cream, and they come quickly, obediently, right away, that's not really saying much about the submissiveness of their hearts. Because that's easy for them to obey. They want to obey that. But it's when you ask them, hey, can you go up and clean your room? Then you're going to really see... Are they going to go griping and grumbling and really only on threat of punishment? Or do they still, even when it's averse to what they would desire, do they still go quickly and cheerfully? Our heart submission is tested when things are against what we would desire. This is the sort of submission that we learned about last week, where Christ was said to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even at personal cost, that showed the greatness of his humility. I love what John Calvin wrote on this verse. He said on this topic that it's important to remember then that Christians are not to wait until they're compelled by force to submit to magistrates. They should submit, conscious that God desires to test our humility by seeing how readily we subject ourselves to the powers of men. But again, we think, well, does this mean that we then just lie down, let our freedoms be trampled, let evil prevail? To borrow the words of of Paul, by no means. That's why he adds here, submit, but then be ready for every good work. So from this attitude of obedience and submission, we need a readiness to do every good work. So that means doing all we can to promote righteousness, justice, and good in society. What the submission part means is that we refrain from autonomous, self-serving, selective obedience, where we become the arbiters of what is right, what is worthy of submission, and what is not. But if we are to be ready to do what is good, that means that we need to be ready to appeal to authority when it is in the wrong, and to work for good using every possible lawful means that God has afforded to us in our situation whether systems of judicial appeal, whether systems of electoral accountability, or peaceful petition and protest. And God be praised that we have much freedom to engage in these systems of appeal. Undoubtedly, far more freedom to work for good than the people of Crete had. We need to be ready to do good by seeking positive social change. And that's not all that entails. What this also entails, this readiness to do good in the civil sphere, is to be ready to engage in a lawful vocation, to support your families and communities. It means being ready from the fruits of your labor to pay taxes, to contribute to public good as Christ commanded us. 
In some, it means to live the sort of life that promotes public good and leads to the flourishing of the entire community. We're called to be submissive, but also proactive. And really, just imagine if Christians were known as those who were most ready to honor and submit and obey the governing authorities, but also those most ready to love their neighbors by pursuing public good, righteousness, justice, and the flourishing of the community. What a witness that would be. An an incredibly submissive people, but an incredibly proactive people. Those are the actions that Christians are called to in God's economy. But as we engage in these things, as we look to pursue good and seek solution to societal problems, undoubtedly we're going to come across conflict, conflicting ideas, conflicting approaches. And therefore, as we engage these things and discuss them, we also need to learn from our text a distinctively Christian approach to life in the civil sphere. Because again, the common action of our society is averse to the character the Word of God calls us to. What is common in the approach to civic engagement these days are things like outrage, sarcasm, disdain, mockery. These are the things that spread most virally on social media. These are the things that make primetime television. And it's totally against the character that God calls his people to exhibit. And so I want us to learn as people, especially in this sort of season, a season where there's much public discussion, debate, and disagreement, to learn to apply this Titus 3-2 test to all our interactions on these sorts of civil matters. Wherein, Paul teaches us, through his instructions to Titus, two things we need to put away and two things we need to put on. Things that affect how we approach civic engagement. So first of all, we see we're called to, well, here they all are all at once. We're to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle and show perfect courtesy towards all people. Titus 3, take a look at verse 2. So first, we're called to speak evil of no one. The word literally actually means blaspheme, but it's meaning to rail against someone, to insult them, to mock them. This is the evil speaking in view. And this word is used specifically of how people discussed Christ on the cross. And as I was reading it with this idea of mockery and insult in mind, this passage popped out in a new way. And this is the sort of attitude that we often see in our civil discourse. Listen to how these people speak evil of Christ on the cross from Mark 13, 29 to 32. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Do you see the insult and mockery? And this is the sort of tone that you don't have to look very far to find in our culture. We're called to put this away. God calls us to a different form of rhetoric as Christians. We're called, secondly, to avoid quarreling, or you could say to avoid fighting. Or I like what the King James says, to be no brawlers, not someone who's ready to pick a fight and to go at it. 
But that is, we're to be those people that have that uh, Proverbs 13.1 soft answer that turns away wrath. We're to be people who seek to de-escalate tense situations, not continue their escalation. And what this means is that we need to be people that know the difference between a discussion and a quarrel. The difference between a discussion and a quarrel is that in a discussion, people are seeking mutual understanding. Whereas in a quarrel, you're just seeking to win. It's the difference, if you will, between a water balloon toss and a water balloon fight. I don't know if, uh, boys and girls, you've ever done that, you know that water balloon toss game? You stand opposite your partner, you have a water balloon, and you toss it back and forth, try to catch it gently so it doesn't break. Then if you catch it, you take a step back, toss again, and you see how far you can go without breaking the water balloon to keep it intact. So you need to be gentle, thoughtful, and careful. And that's what a good discussion is like. You're facing opposite of someone, and you gently and carefully are sending ideas back and forth, seeking to not break it, and hence lose your ability to even speak into someone's life. But as you gently give and receive, you're able to both be stretched in your thinking, consider new perspectives, and grow in your ability to have uh, lar larger thoughts, more complex thoughts, more nuanced thoughts, and you're working together in this for mutual benefit. An argument or quarrel is like a water balloon fight, where you have one goal and one goal only, to decimate your opponent, to soak them, to smite them with glee, to find the victory. That's what an argument is like. And yes, water balloon fights can be fun, that's besides the point, but some people do actually find fun from these sorts of arguments, and again, that's uh, despicable and not something we're called to. But we understand the difference between seeking mutual understanding and just seeking to win. And so as Christians, we're called to put off this sort of quarreling. We should not be a quarreling people. And really, here's the danger of this sort of harsh rhetoric and argumentation. It never wins your opponents. It just hardens them. It makes them more hateful and polarized. Yes, it gains accolades from your supporters, but eventually you lose your ability to speak into the lives of others. And so instead of being insulting and argumentative, like we see in our culture, we're called by Paul and really by Christ, to first be gentle. That is to be kind and considerate. To be mild in our speech, not harsh. And not only is this way of gentle speaking godly, but it's also more effective. Proverbs 16.21 tells us that sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. And so even if you have the truth, say you have a pill that's hard to swallow... No one really likes to swallow a hard pill. We bought these like vitamin C's a while back. They were just these huge, terribly hard pills. And they were so terrible to swallow that eventually I just gave up taking these uh, vitamin C's. And I was just like, give me my Flintstone vitamins back. That's where it's at. And so the makers of these, they know if you want someone to take a pill that's hard to swallow, make it sweet and make it chewable. Our arguments ought to be like Flintstone vitamins that are easy for people to receive. I love Flintstone vitamins, I just got to say. <laughs> Sweetness of speech increases persuasiveness. We're called to be gentle in our speech, but also to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Or it could also be translated all meekness. What this means is that as Christians, we're not people who fight fire with fire. We're not people who are quickly provoked or easily irritated and brought to quarreling. That is, as Christians, to be a meek people is kind of to be like the ideal family dog. 
you know that dog that sits on his mat, and even though the toddlers are like pulling his tail, pulling his ears, he stays serene. He doesn't bark at them, doesn't nip at them. That is the perfect picture of meekness. That even if others come at us, we're able to maintain our head when all others are losing theirs. We're supposed to have this sort of gentle disposition. And notice it says, to all people. We owe this to all people without exception. That is, not even the worst behaved and most offensive person can disqualify themselves from their right to be treated with kindness and consideration as a fellow image bearer of God. And so it's right that Peter says in 1 Peter 2.17, simply this, honor everyone, full stop, honor everyone. And so, as Christians, we need to watch our tongues, we need to watch our keyboards, you need to watch what memes you share, and apply this Titus 3.2 test to all your engagements. Maybe you might even want to print out and tape this verse on your computer screen. And ask yourself, when you're engaged in civil interactions, ask yourself questions like this. Is this insulting of my opponents? Is this a form of mockery? Or ask, am I just picking a fight here? Am I just desiring to win, or do I genuinely want understanding? Are the words that I'm using harsh, or are they mild and gentle? And am I being totally considerate of and courteous toward my opponent, honoring them as a fellow image bearer of God. It is so important that we as Christians learn this sort of approach to our engagements with people of this world. And it doesn't just have to be about things like politics and policy, but all our interactions with people ought to be governed by these sort of Christian character traits. And again, what a witness it would be if Christians were known as the most considerate the most kind and thoughtful, the most, those most unwilling to sink to the levels of insult and quarrel we see so prevalent. And perhaps then, even if we didn't convince people with our words, we'd win them with our conduct. What a witness that would be. A distinctively Christian approach to civil interaction. And thirdly, there's also a Christian attitude that underlies this all. As we want to be submissive people, ready to do good. As we want to be kind and considerate people. This all stems from an attitude of deep humility. And so Paul reminds Titus, as we need to be reminded, that we're not just dealing with fellow image bearers of God, but we need to see others as fellow sinners. As fellow sinners. Because you see, it's so easy for us to look down our noses at people who are foolish. Oh, they're rebellious. Look at those people enslaved to their lusts. They're so malicious, so violent, so hateful. And so why should we then be kind and courteous to these sorts of people? Why should we submit to these people in governing authorities? Here's why. Paul reminds us, as he reminded Titus, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, Let us stray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We ourselves were once like this. And maybe you're scratching your head and you think, but I don't ever really remember being like that. I was raised in a Christian home. I don't remember a time not loving and seeking to walk with the Lord. Even in that case, this heart disposition 
relates to everyone apart from God's grace. And even if you can't relate to this description of your past, this description perfectly describes what your present right now would be except for the grace of God. This is all of us except for the grace of God and his incredible mercy. And it's so easy for us, it's so easy for us to feel morally superior. To feel like we're on a higher, more enlightened, more moral plane. And what that's like, it's like, it's like a butterfly um, looking down at a caterpillar. Like, oh, look at you, stupid caterpillar. You're so, um, just look at you crawling, you can't even fly, you're so ugly. Not realizing that that butterfly was once that very same caterpillar. And the butterfly didn't know how to build it. The caterpillar didn't know how to build itself into butterfly. It wasn't smart. But in the cocoon, there's a mysterious work. We know it's the work of the Lord. It doesn't know what's going on. It's passive. And that's the believer. When we receive grace, it's nothing of ourselves. No reason to boast. But God's transforming power to alight upon us, to free us from slavery to sin, how could we look down on those still caught in sin? They should be the objects of our incredible compassion. The pride that lifts us up as morally superior is always the pride that minimizes the grace of God and really casts it down. And so we need this sort of recognition that we are fellow sinners. And what this does is it allows us to maintain an attitude of empathetic humility, of empathetic compassion. Because it's in seeing ourselves reflected in the sinful actions and behaviors of society that leads us to a humble and compassionate exercise of mercy and love. This empathetic humility recognizes that apart from the grace of God, we ourselves would also be foolish, led astray. We ourselves would also be slaves to various passions and pleasures. We ourselves would pass our days in malice and envy. We'd be hated by others and hating one another. And until we understand this to be true of ourselves, until we understand how true this is of our own hearts, our pride will keep us from reaching out in love to others. Our pride will keep us smug and separate. And just as we know that it's those who have experienced grief that best comfort those who are grieving, so it is that those who most know their own sin best love their fellow sinners. Or as Jesus said, that the one who's been forgiven much loves much. John Calvin again comments so helpfully here. He says, When we see unbelievers who know nothing about God and who are disobedient in both word and deed, we should feel pity for them and recall that we were once like that and would still be if God had not had mercy on us and renewed us out of his own free goodness. And so he concludes, this is Paul's message to us here. We are to bear with those who have never known or tasted God's word, and until we teach them, we must show them gentleness and patience. The Christian attitude of humble, empathetic compassion is what compels the Christian approach of kind and gentle consideration. The Christian attitude of humble, empathetic compassion is what compels the Christian approach of kind and gentle consideration. 
And the truth is, brothers and sisters, that we ourselves were once so led astray and caught up in the cycle of hatred, and we deserved to be left by God in it. We deserved to be left in this state of foolish idolatry and hateful polarization with no recourse. But praise God that that's not where this story ends. Paul continues on the change that occurs in verse 4. Though we were all like this and deserve to be left there, he says, But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This gospel message is the ultimate hope. This is the only thing that ultimately can break the cycle of hatred and disobedience. The greatest hope for society is found in the reconciling blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He delivers us from sin to make us a holy nation. He gives us his spirit to enable this new obedience, to empower people who can be submissive but still seek good, people who can be meek but kind and gentle, people who see themselves as no better than any other except for the grace of God. And so we want all people to know this freedom. So we pray for repentance. We pray for renewal and revival. We proclaim the gospel but also work to do good. We pray And we work. And my contention for us tonight is that if we will follow God's principles for civic behavior and learn his character, I believe that there is much good we can do and much progress we can make even in such a polarized society as ours. But I would warn you that if we are not willing to take these commands of Christ seriously and to put them into practice, I fear that we will then never have the cultural rapport that's required for us to affect the change that's so necessary. However, through this sort of Christian civic engagement, as we faithfully submit and faithfully do good from an attitude of empathetic humility, loving our neighbors, pursuing good in kindness, gentleness, and consideration, I think we can make much progress as we seek the peace and the prosperity of this city to which we've been called. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your grace is amazing. Your grace is so amazing that we'll be able to sing about it for 10,000 years and forevermore. Lord, help us to realize once again that there's nothing in us that compelled you to save us but we are the recipients of incredible mercy. Let us never forget that, Lord. Would that truth humble our hearts all our days? Would your spirit help us to maintain an empathetic compassion towards fellow sinners, towards fellow image bearers, and that we would seek their good, that we would seek justice and righteousness in society, but also the eternal good of these, our fellow citizens. We ask that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done, that you would come quickly, Lord Jesus. But until that day, help us to be faithful. Help us to show forth the love of our compassionate Savior and to conduct ourselves as your people.
the holy people of God. And that that would be a witness before a watching world. Until that day when every knee bows and every tongue confesses the Lordship of Christ. Help us to work and to pray. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.